His army at his side, the young king rode proudly across the plains. His greatest battle lay behind him. Now was a time for celebration, to revel in the spoils of conquest. Alexander had heard tales of the city from his boyhood teacher, Aristotle. Babylon, the jewel of Mesopotamia, at one time, the greatest city on earth. Indeed, he could see its walls for hours as he approached, first as a strange stone monolith in the distance, then gradually, as his armies came closer to the city, it became a monster, towering over them, straddling the river Euphrates with the same ease upon which Alexander currently sat his horse. As the Macedonians finally arrived in the city, Alexander was granted with the view he had dreamed of since childhood. Babylon, the jewel of Mesopotamia. Towering above them all at the north end of the great settlement lay what must surely have been the palace. It too reached for the heavens, terraces upon terraces of statues, columns, and archways. But at its peak, the stone and brick gave way to something else entirely. Not just a garden. But a paradise. Not just a monument. But a wonder. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. Today, we're investigating the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Regarded as a wonder of the ancient world, the gardens are long gone. But some people wonder if they ever existed at all. In today's part one, we'll examine historical accounts of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, try to separate reality from embellishment, and figure out why the Hanging Gardens are recorded in so few ancient texts. And next time, in part two, we'll dive into archaeological findings and explore the current theories about how and where the gardens existed. If you like the show, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Thursday. While you're there, we'd greatly appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at Parcast.com. Few today could speak to the ancient city of Babylon. Its majesty has long since faded into ruin. What was this place of architectural and cultural brilliance, written of so often by the ancient Greeks and Romans? And what lay at its center? Legends tell of a massive, multi-tiered garden atop the king of Babylon's palace. We know this grand structure as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Depending on the translation, the hanging either referred to the way the plants from the garden supposedly hung from the sides of the palace walls, or to the way the entire garden itself seemed to hang in midair when viewed from a distance. Greek historian Theseus spoke of their great size and beauty of their appearance. The Babylonian priest Barossus referred to them as a pensile paradise, and the Greek engineer Philo of Byzantium called them a work of art of royal luxury. These scant few references to the gardens 
mention a complex system of vaulted structures supporting mounds of soil containing all manner of plant life. This would have been impressive on its own, but the legends also speak of a pump system that brought water from the Euphrates River to the garden. In 600 BC, these gardens truly would have been an engineering marvel. So magnificent were they that they were named as one of the famous seven wonders of the ancient world. But could all of that have really existed on top of the king's palace, which itself was dozens, maybe hundreds of feet tall? What would have inspired the Babylonians to undertake such a difficult project? And the most important question of them all, were the Hanging Gardens of Babylon even real? What we know for sure is that by 1000 AD, Babylon was abandoned and all traces of the gardens had been lost to history. At one time, the city was the largest on earth, with higher walls than any other. It housed so many temples that they outnumbered the amount of temples in the next three largest cities combined. It was as close to a paradise in the desert as had ever existed, a Garden of Eden that was as debaucherous as it was luxurious. The question of the existence of the Hanging Gardens goes hand in hand with the study of ancient Babylon itself. Such achievement would have made Babylon an object of desire as much as admiration. It's possible that the lack of physical evidence for the gardens results from their thorough destruction at the hands of Babylon's jealous enemies. The empire fell in 539 BC to the Achaemenid Empire, the first great Persian force led by Cyrus the Great. But Alexander the Great, who would in turn conquer the Persians, is said to have witnessed the wonder upon his arrival in 331 BC. So. If neither of these great rulers laid waste to the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, then the gardens must have disappeared sometime between 323 BC and about 100 AD, a relatively brief period of time in the grand scope of history. The answer to this mystery is especially difficult, as it lies not within a trove of hidden documents or the contours of an enigmatic painting, but behind the veil of history itself beneath obscuring layers of wind, dirt, and time. 2,500 years ago, the Mediterranean bore witness to the greatest civilizations and greatest struggles the world had up to that point ever known. And from those civilizations sprung palaces, temples, and monuments. Symbols speaking to the accomplishments of men and the power of their gods. Naturally, writers and travelers who had seen these structures related stories of their grandeur. A certain competitive spirit began to surround the discussion of which temples were the largest, which statues the most magnificent. In the same way that we might find a top 10 list online today, competing lists ranking the most wondrous sites of the ancient world could be found in ancient Greece, Rome, and Egypt. But eventually, seven of these structures would come to be revered above all others. The Seven Wonders of the Ancient World, first mentioned in their entirety by an unknown Greek writer who lived in the 3rd century BC, they were grouped together as a sort of must-see travelogue if one could survive such a trip across the Hellenistic world. There were the Pyramids of Giza, the oldest of the wonders and ironically the only ones still standing. Built by the pharaohs of the 26th and 25th centuries BC, they served as temples, tombs, and monuments all in one, 
meant to prepare the pharaohs for their journey to the afterlife. There was the Olympian statue of Zeus, meant to honor the chief deity of the Greek pantheon. Though it was lost either to fire or human tampering in the 5th century AD, its likeness survives on coins and in written accounts from that era. The next wonder was the Temple of Artemis, the most impressive temple to the gods built in all of Greece, again lost to either fire or dismantling at the hands of the Catholic Church, though archaeological remnants still remain. And just about a hundred miles south was the mausoleum at Halicarnassus, built by an ancient Greek queen who so missed her deceased brother-husband that she drank his ashes with her evening meals. Some of the mausoleum still survives today. The Colossus of Rhodes is the next on the list, a bronze titan that was said to straddle the port entrances to the island nation of Rhodes. Though it fell in an earthquake in the 3rd century BC, its existence is well documented, and its influence still felt in monuments today, such as in New York City's Statue of Liberty. Guiding Egyptian ships to safety was the Lighthouse of Alexandria, also called the Pharos. It stood until about the 16th century, its ruins still present beneath the waves of the Mediterranean. And that's all of the wonders accounted for, save for one, the only one to not have its existence definitively proven, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Though their name would of course suggest they were located in Babylon, no definitive archaeological evidence exists in that region. There's no record whatsoever of the garden's destruction, no historic earthquake or fire. But if they did exist, then all seven wonders could have only stood simultaneously in the world for a period of roughly 30 to 60 years, somewhere between 292 and 226 BC. And all seven moved those who saw them to such a degree that these structures ascended to a level beyond that of mere edifice, but to the level of wonder. They stood as a testament to the resiliency of those who had made them. If man could straddle the ocean, raise a mountain, pierce the very clouds, then truly he had conquered the world, which for so many millennia had proven harsh and unforgiving. But with relatively thin recordings of the legendary gardens, the question arises as to why they are even considered as one of the seven wonders. How did they end up on the list? It could be that ancient authors, in their own way, felt the need to be inclusive, to represent each region of the Mediterranean in their writings. As we've said, the list was meant as a sort of travelogue, though few authors had actually been to all of the places they were discussing. Or perhaps the important role the gardens played in Greek society led Greek historians to include the hanging gardens in their lists. For example, Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher, founded his school, now known as the Lyceum, on a particularly lush patch of land outside of Athens. Students were taught among flowers, herb gardens, and fruit trees. Throughout history, the garden has proven to be a symbol of power and wealth. There are the carefully planned and meticulously maintained royal gardens at Versailles and Buckingham Palace, or even the wilder and eccentric gardens of the Villa d'Este in Italy or Swan Nung Nut in Thailand. Ancient travelers who bore witness to the garden in Babylon would have thus viewed the wonder as the pinnacle of cultural development. The number of definitive references to the hanging gardens of Babylon can be counted on one hand. These sources are the only reason there's even a hanging garden legend to discuss. 
All of our sources for the Hanging Gardens come from either ancient Greek or Roman historians who were in turn quoting even older histories. And even those older histories themselves were not written by eyewitnesses. Yes, an ancient game of telephone. And all of it translated hundreds of years later into English by 18th, 19th, and 20th century figures such as theologian William Whiston, historian George Rawlinson, and Professor John Yardley. These translations were compiled into digestible histories by the likes of authors and researchers James Wellard, Joan Oates, Irving L. Finkel, Trevor R. Bryce, and Stephanie Daly. Much of our information comes from their work. This is part of what makes the mystery of the Hanging Gardens such an attractive subject for historians and archaeologists. For enthusiasts, every one of these references is a tantalizing clue on the road to proving the gardens existed. Each source has to be pulled apart for accuracy, examined for style to see if the author is quoting firsthand, stealing from another source, or embellishing entirely. If there is an original source, then that must be tracked down next and put to the same test. There are layers and layers to be pulled away with a potential ancient wonder waiting at the core. Mysterious tales of an enormous garden in the East pop up in the history of Alexander the Great, in the writings of the Roman Emperor Trajan, and in the ancient histories of Theseus and Clitarchus. It's a legend recurring in some of the most important historical tomes of the 5th century BC, continuing into the 2nd century AD. The most famous source is Josephus, the Jewish expatriate who became a Roman citizen and historian. Even in his writings on the gardens, we see that he is in fact referencing an even older source. When Josephus mentions the Hanging Gardens in his works, Antiquities of the Jews, written in 94 AD, and Against Appian, written three years later, he's actually quoting the ancient Babylonian priest Berossus and his history of Babylon entitled Babylonica, an ancient text written for the Greeks in the year 280 BC, one that has not survived to the present day. In Book 1, Section 10 of Against Appion, Josephus writes, quote, So when Nebuchadnezzar had thus fortified the city walls after an excellent manner, and had adorned the gates magnificently, he added a new palace to that which his father had dwelt in, and this close by it also, and the more eminent in its height and in its great splendor. It would perhaps require too long a narration if anyone were to describe it. However, as prodigiously large and magnificent as it was, it was finished in 15 days. Now in this palace he erected very high walls, supported by stone pillars, and by planting what he called a pensile paradise, and replenishing it with all sorts of trees, he rendered the prospect of an exact resemblance of a mountainous country. This he did to please his queen, because she had been brought up in Media and was fond of a mountainous situation." End quote. There's so much to unpack here. Josephus refers to Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of Babylon from the late 7th century BC to the mid-6th. He describes the king as a builder who constructed the walls and gates of the city, as well as a new palace greater in size and magnificence than that of the previous kings. And it's that palace that is then said to have housed the gardens. 
built so that a homesick queen might feel more comfortable in the flat region of Babylon. To uncover the truth behind the gardens, we must investigate Nebuchadnezzar and learn what is known for certain of his reign. This was a monarch who transformed Babylon into the greatest city on earth, whose actions shaped the Middle East and whose reputation earned him a place as one of the greatest villains of the Bible. The first known reference to Babylon occurs in a tablet from 2200 BC. Babylon as both a city and a culture grew out of some of the very first civilizations known to man, that of the Sumerians and Akkadians of Mesopotamia. Located on the Euphrates River, Babylon featured a diverse citizenship composed of many different regional tribes. They were farmers and fishermen, architects and priests. Though the Babylonian dynasty likely began in the late third millennium, its first significant ruler came to power in 1792 BC. He is known today as King Hammurabi. Living thousands of years before the construction of the gardens, Hammurabi is foundational to Babylonian culture and his contributions help us to understand how the city would eventually give birth to a wonder of the world. Babylon would grow larger than ever before thanks to Hammurabi's military prowess. However, his most significant contribution to Babylonian culture were his code of laws, believed to have been committed to stone in 1754 BC. This lengthy text could be found on stone pillars erected throughout Hammurabi's kingdom. Justice was important to the king. Unusual for the time is the fact that Hammurabi's laws offer protection to those of lower social classes, even slaves. In ancient Babylon, the lowliest serf had certain legal rights. And most importantly, it's at this point in Babylon's history that the significance of written communication becomes clear. The ancient Babylonians were fastidious record keepers, their love of writing fueled by their heritage and their devotion to the gods. Scribe work was among the most revered professions in Babylonian culture. Babylonians communicated using cuneiform, a system of wedged dashes created using sharpened reeds taken from the banks of the Euphrates. Over the past two centuries, archaeologists have discovered thousands of buried clay tablets in the ruins of Babylon. Perhaps tellingly, there are no references to the hanging gardens among any of these recovered tablets. For such a feat to go unrecorded in the accounts of its own people is the greatest argument against the existence of the seventh wonder. However, Thanks to these writings and the culture of writing established by Hammurabi, we know much about Nebuchadnezzar, the king said to have built the gardens. But for the Western world, perceptions of Nebuchadnezzar are inevitably colored by his unfavorable depictions in the Bible. Written as it was by Hebrew historians, the Bible paints the kings of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar in particular as cruel despots sent by God to punish the Israelites for their sins. In the book of Revelation, Babylon is even referred to as, quote, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations, end quote. Nebuchadnezzar appears primarily in the book of Daniel. He is portrayed as a mad tyrant who cruelly punishes those who do not worship him, most famously by throwing the brothers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into a furnace. 
It's difficult to imagine that such a barbaric ruler could be responsible for the construction of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Would a despot who threw his subjects into a furnace really care whether his queen had a pleasant garden to look at? Could terraces upon terraces of trees and flowers of all kinds have resided over tortured subjects below? In fact, the real Nebuchadnezzar was likely far less barbaric than the ancient Hebrew authors of the Bible might lead us to believe. From inscriptions on palace and temple walls to mundane references in storehouse manifestos, Nebuchadnezzar's rule was recorded in great detail. His story truly begins with the reign of his father, King Nabopolassar, the first ruler of what is today referred to as the Neo-Babylonian Empire. In 616 BC, after centuries of oppression at the hands of their eternal rivals, the Assyrians, the Babylonians began an uprising that ultimately led not only to the resurgence of their independence, but to the permanent ruin of the Assyrians. This is the kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar would inherit, one in rebellion against its rulers for the first time in hundreds of years. It was right before the death of his father in 605 BC that Nebuchadnezzar would achieve his greatest victory in combat at the Battle of Carchemish. An epic clash between the armies of Babylon, Egypt, and Assyria, this was a definitive moment in the politics of the region. Not only did Nebuchadnezzar land the final blow to the Assyrian Empire, destroying Babylon's greatest rival, but he pushed Egypt back behind the Sinai Peninsula, effectively removing Egypt from Near East politics for the rest of time. Nebuchadnezzar returned to Babylon victorious, a mass of riches and slaves at his back. These conditions made the king uniquely situated to grow Babylon more than any king before him had been able to. Truly, if any king were capable of constructing the Hanging Gardens, it was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was faced with a unique question of what to do once ultimate military victory had been achieved. Furthermore, he had a previously unrivaled collection of resources and physical manpower to carry out whatever endeavor he so chose. These resources were turned to construction, both out of a desire to glorify the king and the gods and to ensure that the city would survive well into the future. And also, according to legend, to ensure that the queen herself was happy. And here is perhaps the most difficult aspect of the legend to prove, that Nebuchadnezzar built the hanging gardens for his queen, Amites. Strangely enough, like the gardens, there's no mention of her in tablets from that time. She is mentioned only in later Greek sources such as Josephus. Amites was said to have been a princess from Media, the large kingdom to the northeast of Babylon in modern Iran, Iraq, and Turkey. While we know the names of almost every Babylonian king going back thousands of years, very few of their wives were recorded in Babylonian histories. This seems a typical case of a patriarchal society downplaying the contributions of women. However, cuneiform expert Irving Frankel of the British Museum notes that while Amites is never mentioned in Babylonian tablets, a marriage alliance with Media would certainly have made sense for Nebuchadnezzar. With Assyrians to the north and Egyptians to the west, Babylon needed to be on good terms with this large kingdom of the east. Media was a geographically diverse region with mountains and access to the Caspian Sea. And as splendid as Babylon must have been, 
Mesopotamia is a flat region lacking in vegetation. So while we don't have more to go on than Barossus, queen fond of a mountainous situation, the story of a Median princess longing for the mountainous foliage of her homeland is a feasible one. And the idea of a king so in love with his queen that he would build her a mountain is one that has endured through the generations. As with much surrounding the Hanging Gardens, this is another theory that, while entirely possible, is difficult to prove resolutely. What we do know for certain is that Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon was an architectural marvel. To arrive at a complete picture of how the Hanging Gardens may have been built, we must discuss Nebuchadnezzar's other projects that have archaeological evidence for their existence. Barossus, our Babylonian historian, quoted by Josephus, had this to say of Nebuchadnezzar's activities. Quote, he so far restored Babylon that none who should besiege it afterwards might have it in their power to divert the river so as to facilitate an entrance into it. And this he did by building three walls about the inner city and three about the outer." End quote. This quote speaks to Nebuchadnezzar's first great building project, the Walls of Babylon. So great were the walls of Babylon that Antipater of Sidon, the Greek poet, actually referred to them as a wonder of the world. Ultimately, his list would be synthesized with others, and so the walls were dropped in favor of the gardens. But Antipater included them for good reason. Though there is an argument as to the exact size of the walls, archaeological evidence would suggest that there was in fact an inner and an outer fortification, both roughly 50 feet tall. And 20 feet thick, with an additional 20 feet in between the two impenetrable to most armies of the time. If Nebuchadnezzar could build this, the Hanging Gardens don't seem impossible. But the walls of Babylon, as impressive as they were, are not the only great building project we can definitively attribute to Nebuchadnezzar. He was also known for constructing a tower so tall that it was said to have reached to the heavens and the gods themselves. The Babylonians called it the Tower of Atemmenanki. Today, it's more commonly known as the Tower of Babel, an ominous tower so tall that it was said God punished those who built it for their vanity, confusing their language and scattering them to the corners of the earth. Did Nebuchadnezzar go too far? Did his building project somehow offend the heavens themselves? Or was he so successful that he inspired jealousy in his neighbors? The ziggurat of Etemenanki was one of the most important structures to the ancient Babylonians, a temple to their chief deity, Marduk, but also a shrine to the entire Babylonian pantheon, including Enlil, Shamash, Ishtar, and Adad. Its Babylonian name, Babylim, literally means Gate of God. A ziggurat is not unlike a pyramid. It's a large brick structure with a thick base that gives way to a diamond peak. Almost every significant city in Mesopotamia contained one. Many are still standing today. If the Hanging Gardens existed, they likely very closely resembled this type of structure, only to an even larger scale. And unlike the gardens, the tower's existence is not in doubt. Babylonians revered this temple. And like anything important in their lives, they wrote about it. Again, this is damning evidence for the existence of the gardens, 
to have one structure referenced so constantly while another wasn't at all. But it is the gardens nonetheless that hold the most prominent place in legend. Babylon had great walls, but other cities had walls. It had a huge number of temples, but still, many other cities featured a large number of temples. However, no other city on earth could claim a self-irrigating, mountain-imitating, incredibly diverse garden seated atop a palace in a region known for being flat and fairly barren. Luckily, some of our sources referring to the gardens do go into details regarding their supposed construction. It's a good thing, too, because as impressive as Babylonian architecture was, a massive mountain palace with a multi-tiered greenhouse is an entirely different, almost unbelievable feat of construction. In the 600s BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon transformed the city into the largest the world had ever known, with impenetrable walls and dozens of temples. But even those achievements would pale in comparison to the Hanging Gardens. Greek historian Theseus mentions the Hanging Gardens being constructed around 590 or 580 BC. He describes them as a wood enclosure, square in shape and 400 feet long on each side. Terraces were then stacked atop this structure, which Theseus likens to the appearance of a theater, with the uppermost terrace 75 feet high. In order to accomplish this, Nebuchadnezzar would have had to create strong foundations beneath the terraces, which Greek historian Diodorus describes as vaults, or large stone rooms beneath the gardens that supported the weight of the plants and the smaller terraces through a combination of stone columns and roof beams. And that doesn't even begin to address the actual gardens. The planters holding the greenery were constructed from brick held together by reeds from the Euphrates. Diodorus suggests that the reeds were mixed with what we would call tar and then applied in layers to the stone beams above the vaults. The reeds by themselves wouldn't have been enough to support the weight of the gardens and prevent leaking, so an additional two layers of baked bricks soaked in gypsum, a sort of plaster, were applied. Millions of these bricks were used in Babylon's construction. The Babylonians made the bricks from clay, which again would be plentiful around the river. Nebuchadnezzar's slave workforce likely made the process of manufacturing such a large number of bricks easier than it would have been in previous eras. Even with these layers, it is said that the Babylonians applied a final layer of lead to ensure that absolutely no leakage occurred in the structure. Prolonged exposure to water could easily crack the bricks and dissolve the tar. With the foundations in place, the Babylonians then hauled massive amounts of soil up the side of the structure and began depositing it into the terraces. Though exact numbers are not given in any of the sources, enough soil would have had to have been present to support the roots of multiple trees along each wall of the building. Despite these already impressive steps, the most impressive innovation was the irrigation system, a massive well at the center of the structure. It supposedly traveled the length of the building and found its way to the river, where large shafts of leather buckets on either side of the well continuously traveled by pulley down to the river, and then 
up to deposit water among the terraces. Contained in the center of the structure, as this system was, the gardens would have seemed self-watering, as the average passerby wouldn't see any of the internal processes. From a distance, it truly would have appeared a wondrous mountain of lush foliage. It was the ultimate testament to Nebuchadnezzar's power, and it would last well beyond his death in 562 BC. This is the end of what we know for certain about Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He inherited a kingdom with unlimited potential, grew its borders to encompass the known world, and then transformed Babylon into the greatest city the world had ever known. Which makes it all the more impressive that the Hanging Gardens are potentially the most famous product of his reign. But the Neo-Babylonian Empire would survive only a few decades beyond Nebuchadnezzar's passing before Cyrus the Great and his Persian Empire arrived to conquer a greater portion of the East than any before him. An empire that would continue to expand across the Mediterranean farther than Nebuchadnezzar had ever dreamed. Years later, under King Xerxes, the Persian Empire would come to threaten the Greek city-states, foundations of Western art and culture. Though their progress would be halted in 480 BC at the Battle of Thermopylae, where King Leonidas of Sparta led a thousand men to hold off a hundred thousand. Strangely, archaeologists tend to find that the recovered tablets from the various Babylonian archives and their histories around this time in 484 BC. Histories that began as far back as 600 BC halted suddenly as Babylonian scribes mysteriously went quiet. This may be the beginning of the troubled history of the Hanging Gardens historical record. Contemporary sources suggest that a large insurrection inspired by the stand of the Spartans occurred in Babylon at this time. Xerxes himself returned to the city to violently put down the revolt. As Nebuchadnezzar had done to the Judeans a few hundred years before, Xerxes not only quenched the uprising, but also destroyed the city's temple, melting the statue of Marduk. This was a direct attack on Babylonian culture, an attempt to root out the pride that led to their rebellion. We might then expect that a similar fate would have befallen the Hanging Gardens. So why then was Alexander said to have seen them years later, unless that story itself was a fabrication? Alexander the Great arrived in Babylon around 330 BC. The city and its wonders were said to still be there, though in worse condition than hundreds of years prior. Perhaps the Hanging Gardens, a more secular monument than any of the temples, were spared Xerxes' rage. But this sacking is an important event in our search for the gardens, as it effectively puts an end to the reliable first-hand timeline of Babylon's history. Alexander would return to the city years later, where he had allowed his armies to rest longer than in any other kingdom, and it was here that he would also draw his final breath. In June of the year 323 BC, he would succumb to a fever, surrounded by his generals in the very palace that Nebuchadnezzar and Amites had lived hundreds of years before. Though he had campaigned further east, nothing matched the grandeur of Babylon. It was the paradise from his childhood dreams, his ultimate reward for a lifetime of battle. The city from this point onward would become a constant battleground between Greeks and Persians. 
It's somewhere in this period, the first half of the 5th century BC, continuing all the way into the early centuries AD, that the gardens would have been destroyed. Toward the end of this period, the generals of the next great empire, that of the Romans, would arrive to pay their respects to the great city. Emperor Trajan, fresh off his conquest of the Parthians in Mesopotamia, arrived in Babylon only to find it reduced to rubble. This was in the year 117 AD. Trajan described large mounds of stone arranged in a massive grid that must have once been the city. However, even this is useful in the search for the gardens. Considering the amount of warfare that had taken place in the region of the previous few hundred years, it's astonishing that there was anything left for Trajan to find at all. His brief commentary supports that the legends of Babylon's architecture were true, at least in terms of size and scope. He doesn't discuss details that could point to something as specific as a garden, but he does confirm that a massive footprint remained. There are very few records of what transpired in the region after that. Eventually, the Roman Empire gave way to the first Muslim conquest of the Middle East. And soon, century upon century of conflict would demote Babylon from the forefront of regional politics to a forgotten relic in the lower river plain. Its great walls in the ziggurat crumbled, perhaps slowly like a funeral pyre, or perhaps quickly in a cataclysm of fire. If the gardens did exist, they were now buried or burnt to cinder. For centuries the ruins sat, visited not by kings, but by peasants, looking for bricks with which to build their huts. And these were the more pleasant of Babylon's inhabitants in the first millennium. For there were also criminals looking for refuge and thieves hunting for relics. It was in this state that Wallace Budge of the British Museum first encountered Babylon, arriving in 1888 at the height of British Egypt mania, a fervent cultural interest in antiquities of the East. Budge noted that many local Iraqis had taken to smuggling tablets from the ruins of Babylon. These locals knew that Western scholars such as Budge himself would pay handsomely for the tablets, though the ruling Turkish government did not approve of their removal. As we know, these tablets were plentiful. Each ruined Babylonian structure might contain everything from the Epic of Gilgamesh to its owner's tax bill, and, of course, thieves hardly knew the difference. These profiteers exercised little restraint in their pursuit of the tablets. Budge theorized that as many tablets were destroyed as recovered by the thieves. They were not careful, nor were they able to read cuneiform. It's entirely possible that important tablets detailing lost histories were destroyed or sold for pennies, while dry building records or other trivial pieces were sold for much more. It's sickening to imagine that accounts of our lost hanging gardens, Nebuchadnezzar or Amites, might have been lost due to a careless chisel, or sold to someone who didn't know its value, and placed the piece in their living room for decoration. Enter Robert Koldavai the most important archaeologist in the history of Babylon's excavation. A German citizen, he arrived in Iraq in 1899, and with him he brought a team and the tools necessary to perform a proper excavation of Babylon. He would introduce the procedures that many of us think of today when we picture archaeology. Meticulous combing of the earth, 
brushing off of each piece before it is removed from the ground, and careful zoning to avoid workers stepping on the ruins. Koldavai's search was scientific, whereas previous excavations had essentially been treasure hunts. For Koldavai, a tablet discussing repairs done to a block of apartments was just as useful as a history detailing the rule of a great king. Each little bit discovered was one more piece in the greater picture of ancient Babylon. Eventually, Koldavai would arrive at the most complete picture of the city that we'll likely ever have. He unearthed the walls, which, as we've mentioned, were confirmed to be comparable in size to the legends. Among the walls, Koldavai discovered the so-called Ishtar Gate, the famous blue and gold structure now housed in Germany. In the center of the city, he found Etemenanki, and around this, he found dozens of other temples dedicated to individual gods. The identity of these buildings was confirmed through a combination of written sources found within, and the ruins themselves matching these descriptions, as well as conforming to general expectations of what a temple or a palace or a gatehouse of that time period might look like. For example, Koldavai would uncover a large mound in 1897 that matched the size and location of the ziggurat of Etamenanki, described in tablets from ancient Babylon. Koldavai wrote, quote, The mound rises in a steep slope at a height of 22 meters of the plain, end quote. For the rubble alone to be so large, the original structure must have been massive. We can therefore safely assume that this was the oft-written-about tower. Koldavai's most surprising discovery came at the peak of his excavations when workers uncovered a stone structure in the southern fortress of the city. A building made of stone was already unique enough. The vast majority of ancient Babylon was constructed from mud bricks. In order to use this building material, the Babylonians would have had to import it through trade or carry it a great distance after a conquest. So we know this building must have been important. As Koldavai dug further, he discovered large vaulted rooms, rooms that might have been capable of supporting a large garden above. Digging even further, Koldavai found a well. It was unusual in its shape, with a center tunnel flanked by two smaller shafts. Could this have been some sort of pulley system, bringing water to the upper levels of the structure? The vaulted rooms contained tablets, did they make reference to the gardens? Were these the remains of the ancient wonder, at long last? In the next episode, we'll dive deeper into Koldavai's findings and assess whether he really did uncover the Hanging Gardens. We'll also look at each ancient reference to the Hanging Gardens in detail, examining what aspects of the legend can and cannot be trusted. Within these sources, a surprising disparity exists between each description of the gardens. And we'll uncover a theory that's even more surprising. What if the gardens weren't located in Babylon at all? Don't forget to subscribe to Unexplained Mysteries on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. 
A new episode comes out every Thursday, and next time we'll continue our investigation of the Hanging Gardens. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Greg Castro and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.